Hey everybody and welcome to this week's podcast. This week we have David Coogan from VCU as our guest. So hi David, how are you? Hello Christian, how are you? Good, good, good. Could you uh, give us a little little introduction to yourself for everybody? I'd be happy to. Um, I'm an English professor at Virginia Commonwealth University um, and I specialize in the teaching of writing. And the, the biggest project that's been consuming my time over the last uh, 10 to 15 years has been teaching writing to incarcerated people at our city jail, which has just spawned off in a whole different uh, directions, a lot of different directions involving students who I now bring into the jail with me to write uh, with incarcerated people to write their life stories and see if they can arrive at a better understanding of life. Oh, wow. All right. So before you get into the the nitty gritty of that. How did you get into it? What was the genesis behind that? Well, I guess there's all different ways of accounting for it. Um, uh, deeper in my personal history, I guess, or pro personal slash professional history was when I started working as a writing teacher in Chicago and I was living on the South side or working on the South side, living on the North side and trying to reconcile this disconnect in my mind between the two cities, the two Chicago's, the one that I knew in my, you know, gentrified, more or less safe neighborhood on the north side and the extreme poverty and dense public housing surrounding my little university on the south side. And I decided one day that I'd had enough of living in between those two worlds and I needed to figure out a way to get closer to what I didn't understand. And so I, I went, I started to go into the community and I would bring students with me and develop these service learning projects where the, uh, the students and I could write with a nonprofit or um, a church group or a, a public school and figure out some way that we could make writing useful in helping to transform relationships and building better lives. So how did the community in Chicago react to you going into the community and doing that? I mean, what happened was a transformation of myself as well. I mean, I didn't go in with the answers. I didn't go in on a mission. I went in to learn. I humbled myself before what I didn't understand. And I think when anybody presents themselves that way in any situation, it's it's much easier for people in the community to welcome you and to say yes, because they they see that you're you're genuine, that you want a relationship. You're not just here to give resources or to get a project done. You're actually here to figure out how we can be in dialogue with each other about the issues we care about. So was that your first, the first university that you taught at then that you started that? Yes, I was, I was a, a younger man in my early thirties, <laughs> just uh, finding my way. And I was, I was fortunate that I had guides that you can trust. Right. And for me, I, I, I met so many wonderful community organizers who took me under their wing and showed me uh, where to go and even kind of mentored me and how to build those relationships. Um, I worked in the, uh, with people in the public schools in nonprofits that had trained leaders in public housing um, and people who were the keepers of oral histories of this historic neighborhood in Chicago, Bronzeville, the site of, of one of the many sites of the great migration of African-Americans from the South uh, right. fleeing the lynchings and and the Jim Crow laws. Um, so I was fortunate to kind of have really trustworthy and insightful guides who could help me understand how to merge the academic world with this, this um, rich community world. 
So I, I think one of the, the issues that some new professors have is having the courage, I guess, or the support from administration at the universities mm -hmm. to do this. So how was, how was that for you? Did you have to convince them or were the administration fully on board? Well, it, at the Illinois Institute of Technology in Chicago, um, unlike where I work now at Virginia Commonwealth University, there was no support or infrastructure for service learning. The, the term itself was actually really new and not used at all at this technical school. Right. What I did is I found a group of administrators that were doing similar kind of work. They called it interprofessional engagement. And so since most of the students were in these technical, what they decided to do was them connected with with businesses or corporations or research labs. So they had support for that. So I went to the administrators of, of that entity and, and or that office and I said, well, what about solving social problems or community problems instead of professional problems? What if we engage students that way? And they said, oh, okay, I hadn't thought about that. What do you want? And of course, humanities faculty never ask for as much money or resources as science or technical faculty. Right. So what I was asking for in comparison with my colleagues in engineering was pretty, pretty small. I mean, a, a budget to print a little booklet maybe, uh, or a computer with a scanner or something like that. Um, so the fact that I wasn't asking for a lot of money and that there was an existing infrastructure, all I had to do was interpret it uh, so that it could meet my needs. Convincing my uh, colleagues who taught more traditional humanities classes that this was a good idea to go into the public housing communities and work with leaders and bring that was a much harder thing to convince that was a hard job. so how did you do that because i i've had a some when i first started out i had a similar uh, experience of trying to convince my senior colleagues that this was actually a great idea so how did you how did you do that i just did it you know i i I didn't really pay much attention to, to most of them. Um, I had other colleagues who, who were starting to do similar um, little forays out from our guarded little, not quite gated, but definitely a place set apart kind of a campus. Um, there were a few others that were at least open to those, those uh, partnerships. Um, so I wasn't completely alone. Uh, it just wasn't really in the mission of the department. And that's something I've noticed um, uh, well, in comparison, coming to, to VCU, it really is the mission of the university to engage the community. And there are a lot of departments that do it in so many different ways, um, with, with students and classes as research projects, as service projects. So by comparison, it was much easier uh, to kind of come into an institution that sort of expected to be doing good things in partnership with the right. community. Right. So, so we could, that's a great segue actually to, to VCU. So you went from working in Chicago and then to Virginia, to Richmond, Virginia, where you now are working with the prison community. So how did you get involved in that? It was more or less in my mind, um, a continuation of what I had begun in Chicago. I was, I guess, uh, not quite radicalized, but I, I wouldn't use that word, but I was definitely, my consciousness was raised by working with so many people who were at the extreme margins of poverty and structural racism 
gender and sexuality and, and violence against women. Violence against queer folk was not as much on my radar then, at least not in the worlds of the circles I was traveling in. But I, I definitely met people um, who were struggling in ways that I had not struggled in my more sheltered, kind of all white middle-class life in Connecticut. Having awakened to, to those struggles and having committed to making my career, I guess you would say like, I wanted to make my life matter. And I saw in this kind of work in teaching writing to, to, for social change. So when I got to the university, VC had so much more of an infrastructure and a cultural expectation to be doing good work. Um, I felt empowered to continue to follow my muse, more or less, and, and find these relationships. And the way it started, or the, the, the easiest way to explain it is that I made it more personal. When I got to Richmond, um, I was no longer living in a community apart from where I was working. In Chicago, it was a much bigger city. I was all the way up on the north side, 40 Sorry. minutes away, going down to this much poorer, segregated part of the city. In Richmond, I live in the inner city. I don't live directly in the projects, um, but I live right near them. So when there was a, a violent crime in the neighborhood right near my home, right in the park by my home, a gang rape in the park by my home, and all of my neighbors who I'm just now starting to know are getting upset because naturally we're all upset. We want to know what happened and you know how to prevent it, all those kinds of questions. I started to get really curious as to why people commit crimes. And I, it struck me that um, they hardly get up and make a rational decision to go hurt people, that it, that that can't be the motivation for the majority of people that something right. must have happened where they slid into this mindset or this expectation about themselves where the only thing they can think to do to get through the day um, is to solve their problem in a violent way. You know, and if it's a, if it's a robbery or if it's a rape um, or if it's, you know, some kind of, 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 of crime that hurts somebody else, they're not trying to hurt somebody else necessarily. They're, they're trying to, to help themselves. So I had never asked these kinds of questions of myself before. And so um, when I really started probing it, I stopped thinking about that particular crime. And I started thinking about meeting the people, again, forming those relationships. I wanted to meet people in prison and ask them the question, how did you get here? And how can you help yourself stay out of here? And I reasoned that if you could write the story of your life, right. you'd be able to figure out the cause to the effect. And there'd be some things where you could say, yeah, I made the wrong choice, but there'd be a lot of things where you could say, you know, let me have some compassion for myself. I was up against the wall and I didn't have a lot of resources or opportunities. And so I, I knew that there would be a back and forth between individual uh, agency or personal responsibility and structural constraint. And I wanted to hear how people would would write about that or how they would narrate their lives that way in the intersection of those two forces. And so that's what led me to the jail. And from there, a lot of opportunities opened up in terms of how I could develop as a professor and as, as a scholar that way. So you've been doing this for 10 years now with the jail, is that right? Uh, it's actually a little closer to 15. Okay, mm -hmm. so, so 15 years ago, what was the reaction from 
from the prisoners in the jail? Well, I was more or less right that if you ask the question, as I try to always do, with humility and with an openness to what the answer might be, that right. if you genuinely care and, you, and you're curious to know the answer and you're not trying to front load people with solutions, but you just ask the question, how did you get here? Do you think you could write your way out? Um, most of the people that I met were interested in that. Um, now, some were, were not only interested, they were committed and they were capable of following through on that. Then there was another big chunk, another third of them, who were very interested and they might be able to stick with it for eh, three or four weeks, maybe five. Um, but they weren't necessarily committed to finishing writing um, or truly getting all the answers. And then there were um, a bunch that, you know, they wanted, they wanted to come see what it was like. They wanted to get off the, the tier. They wanted to get into the little air conditioning chapel. You know, they thought maybe I was a woman or somebody. <laughs> they thought maybe I had snacks or something, you know, like they had other motivations um, and it just wasn't for them. And there was no hard feelings. You know, it's, it's more or less you treat people rationally or with respect and you get that back most times. And that's what I experienced in 2006 when I first went there. So the, the work that you're doing then must be kind of institutionalized at the, the jail, right? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, institutions are living, breathing, uh, evolving right. thing. They've come from somewhere and they're going somewhere. The, the Richmond City Jail under Sheriff C.T. Woody, back at the old jail in, um, that's now been taken down so they could build a newer, scarier jail, but the old jail had a culture of, of education and, and recovery groups. Um, what they did not have a culture of was partnering with universities. So right. all I had to do was keep showing up consistently and proving to the, um, the, the inmates, but also to the staff that I had no other um, agenda, but to want to develop programs that, that could help right. everybody. So after I did my own class on the Saturdays for about a year, more or less two or three years later, I met, I kept volunteering, you know, um, on my own, but then I met the staff who were interested in uh, what else I could offer. And, and when, when I met the education director, finally, he said, you know, you could be coming in during the weekdays and you could bring some of your students. You could also bring other colleagues if you want to, you could bring whoever you want. And I was like, really? And so by then I had a reputation as a pretty consistent and positive person, you know, right. who would come there and help people with their, with their writing. Yeah. And so that, that's how I developed the, the program, Open Minds, um, that links college students with incarcerated people in service learning courses. And I got together um, my, my colleague and friend, uh, Liz Canfield, to help me envision the broader structure and how we could how we could develop it as a like you say an institutionalized program and then we got another colleague john waybright who teaches religious studies so between liz's classes and women's studies religious studies and then mine in english we were able to form a core of humanities classes and we started that in 2010 um, and uh, as you can expect there were growing pains <laughs> right so tell us about some of the growing pains because this Honestly, this just sounds so incredibly amazing. Like, I can't imagine that there wouldn't have been a few bumps in the road, right? 
Of, yes. Uh, so, you know, institutions, they are living, breathing, growing things, but, you know, the, the inertia of history can be, can be really rough. Because yeah. the way that an institution has always done things um, is kind of like a reality to the people who are working in it. And if you're not a decision maker in an institution, you look at the, those policies and the ways you do things as just reality. So, for example, coming into the jail with students, um, of course, as you, know, you would expect, we had to develop procedures for, and, you know, for safety. It includes dress code, you know, items you can bring in, not bring in. And none of that had really been written out from the sheriff's office because they weren't used to having college students coming in. So yeah. we got into the very fine-grained weeds of what you could wear and not wear, which tattoos and so on, and which jewelry. And, um, and that would all be fine. But, you know, the exterior is one thing. The interior is another. The outward appearance or the rules are one thing, but behavior is another. And so we would bring students in, we would sit in community um, with incarcerated people, um, sometimes men, sometimes women, um, and we'd have a room together of, of people doing a class. And the, the education director um, was a, he's a, a, you know, he's no longer working there, but um, when he was there, he, had, he was already 30 years into the job and he was very well known and respected there. And when he didn't like what an inmate was doing in the room, he would just get up and escort them out of the room and kick him out. So it could be anything, it could be subtle or he would just never invite them back. And so his way of handling uh, dissent or discipline of any kind was just to kick them out of school. And so if I had a student come in who caught an attitude or said something, you know, that, that like something that you and I would not be offended by. Right. If he or she said that in class or made indication of something negative, um, his attitude, uh, this guy, the education director, John, he would, he would just tell me, I don't want that student coming back anymore. Wow. Really? And it'd be like six weeks into the class, you know, we're past the ad drop period. He's not about to give me a reason. There's nothing in writing. So there's the institutional practice at the jail is like, you know, it's a top-down military kind of environment. You know, you can, you can boss people around and get away with it, basically. Yeah. But educational institutions are egalitarian, and there's, they're mostly transparent with all their rules of how faculty and students and staff interact. So I had to explain to John, I said, John, you can't just kick students out because mm -hmm. you don't like something they said or what they wore. You got to, like, write it all down so I can prepare the students and we have a procedure um, and that, he didn't like that. He was not ready for that, but, but um, he, he eventually did it. And I was able to minimize the times when he had to kick a student out. It really only happened um, maybe two more times, I think, out of all those years. Well, and yeah, and, uh, and uh, Liz and I, the, we're co-directors of the program. We more or less agreed with the reasoning. So yeah, so merging institutional cultures is hard. Yeah. Yeah, so the actual project itself is, I saw that there's a website. What, uh, what kind of information is on that? Is it the stories from the, the prisoners? Oh, writingourwayout.com? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, so that, that website is, refers to the title of the book that I wrote with the first class of students back in 2006. 
we resolved uh, to write a book together about our project and we called it Writing Our Way Out, Memoirs from Jail. And it's uh, my story of teaching them to write their stories and it's these 10 memoirs. So while the class is unfolding uh, over several years, you get their lives unfolding from their first childhood memories into their first crimes, prison time, and then their reentry. And that, that book was published in 2015, uh, roughly 10 years after that first class. Right. And then uh, in the middle of that, the program Open Minds began. And since all that, we've developed um, additional programs. I, I don't know if you want to hear those now. Yeah, or... yeah absolutely. Okay, so uh, the, when the book was published in 2015, we did all these events. We were, we were my co-authors are now out of jail and out of prison. And we had this book. And so we wanted to, to go out in front of audiences and read from it. And so right. we did. We would come out as in small groups. We didn't all go at the same time. Not everybody is living in Richmond. Not all the events were in Richmond. So we would have two or three usually at each event. And we would get audiences, some college students, some churches, uh, some community groups. Uh, and it was, it was wonderful. We did over 50 or 60 events in, in two years. Um, and when the events died down, as most book tours do, the, the, the guys and I were kind of wondering what we would do next. We enjoyed getting together as a group and, and sharing our story. We loved interacting with audiences. And so I decided that I would try a new tack with them. And I said, let's start a podcast. And so we did. We started a podcast called Writing Our Way Out, the podcast. And the podcast takes stories from the book. And then we generate uh, a dialogue from them. And we usually we bring other experts in to help us analyze the stories. So we start in the pre-COVID-19 days, we started doing this with live audiences. And it was much like our book events, except this time it was recorded. And we had more of a focus on one theme, like structural racism or physical discipline, all of it coming out in the life story. Um, and in the post-COVID right. days, we've been doing it like you and I are talking now over Zoom. Uh, so yeah. writingourwayout.com has those episodes we've done, I, th I think eight or nine episodes so far. And we we are continuing. We have another one coming up on October 19th about the recent police brutality and the protests oh. over police brutality. Well, that sounds like something we should tune into for sure. Yeah, October 19th, seven o'clock on Facebook, on the Writing Our Way Out uh, page on Facebook. You can live stream that. It's called The Prison of White Supremacy, that episode. And we're gonna be looking at the links between mass incarceration and the lost cause narrative which was critiqued here in Richmond and elsewhere after the death of George Floyd, um, these symbols of, of, of white supremacy, of, of the lost cause narrative about the Civil War. And at least in Richmond, those symbols dominate um, um, the city landscape uh, on Monument Avenue, and they've one by one been coming down. Right, right, right. That's a good point. So, so we are moving forward with these uh, these just amazing. I'm just blown away by the work that you're doing. I mean, you're you're still a young a young man. So how do you think uh, this is going to continue to go? Do you have any 
other future directions you want to take this? Actually, yeah, I, I, I skipped over one of the other projects that's developed from, from this work that I'm really proud of. And I, I again, in, in the, when we resume our normal life in the, in the foreseeable future, when, when COVID-19 is a thing of the past, I hope to, to get back to this program as well. Um, I created a criminal justice diversion program based on writing our way out. And what that means is I partnered with our Commonwealth's attorney's office, the, you know, the dist district attorney who, the, the person who puts people in jail. Right. And I, I invited the Commonwealth's attorney's office to consider diverting low-level offenders who, in their judgment, don't really pose a threat to public safety, to divert them from jail time to class time. And, and they agreed. And so... We, we created a program. I engaged um, one of my co-authors to be um, a coach in it. And so, uh, Kelvin Belton, one of my friends and co-authors of Writing Our Way Out, um, and I have done three classes now over three semesters. I teach the class. It's a regular memoir writing class. It's on campus. There's VCU students in it. And then there's 10 more citizens from the community diverted from the courts uh, from, from the courts to campus. And so they, they take this class, they finish the class, they write their life story. We have a celebration for them, a graduation ceremony at the end, and they never go to jail. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, we, and it works, it works. We've only had maybe one or two people um, you know, relapse or commit a new crime. Um, we, what I learned from this is, is the same thing that I had been learning at the jail, which is what gave me the confidence to, to do it, was that if you treat people, again, with, with kindness and respect and humility, they mostly give that back to you. Sometimes they struggle to know how to do that because they've been so traumatized or they've been, they face so many adversities and they might not be used to being in a classroom or taking themselves seriously or affirming themselves. They might struggle with failure. There's a lot of little things like that. But if you help them, if you commit to working with people um, and just kind of venturing into the unknown beyond your comfort zone as a teacher, you find yourself richly rewarded. Uh, I, I treasure all of the time I've spent at the jail and in this diversion program. I still, I still in contact with a lot of the people that have taken this class um, and they, they, and, and my college students as well. It's, it's, a, it's a, a really um, touching experience for everybody to be able to come into community with one another, right. open up, share your deepest struggles in life, and not be judged. Right. And all that's going to happen is that you're going to have a chance to grow, and you're going to be invited to analyze everything that's happened, uh, whether it's in your family or if you suffer from a mental health issue or um, addiction or, or racism, you know, you just open up about that. You tell that story and you figure out how it's become a part of you. And then you ask yourself, well, is there some other way I can live? Aren't there other stories or other chapters I could write? And, and you're supported in that you're supported you you bring your draft in you read it out loud and it's amazing how much common ground people find 
in each other's lives. It's, it's been there all along. We just rarely take the time to walk on it. So the impact that you've had on your community has just, has just been incredible. Have you had the chance to, and I'm sure you haven't because of all the work that you're doing, but have you had the chance to replicate it anywhere else or have your colleagues from different states or different cities try something similar? I have met fellow travelers who have done very similar projects in their own voices, maybe from a slightly different discipline, like theater, for example, very similar It's storytelling. Um, others have done it with literature more than with writing. I've met people in psychology who've done the same kind of thing with like group work. So I've definitely, but in terms of uh, uh, replicating, no, not really. I don't, I think I would need help on, on doing that logistically. I'm, I, I have taught uh, work, informal workshops for other faculty um, who are considering exactly this kind of work or, or, or doing similar work with similar populations. Um, it's been a, a dream of mine to actually do what you're saying, to replicate it. But I almost think it would, it would be an, a whole new job for me. I don't know if I would have the time to teach my other classes and, and do my research if I was building that big infrastructure. I think the closest thing I've gotten to it is building Open Minds, the college program in the yeah. jail. Um, and even that has, has a long way to go to being developing into a, um, a more robust program with more, more faculty, maybe um, associate's degrees or degrees coming out of it, uh, scholarships and all that. Um, so I think with the diversion program, it would be a very similar challenge for me is Right. developing that skill set that's not as natural to me which involves learning um you know some more business skills maybe maybe grant writing skills maybe how to use excel <laughs> all the stuff all the stuff that i avoid in life <laughs> um but would be necessary if you're going to build a, a a more robust model for replication yeah uh, i hope you do though so this is phenomenal so if if there are folks out there who are like, well, I want to replicate this now. I want to get in touch with David to, uh, to find out how to do this. So how would, uh, how could they do that? Well, I would urge them to go to writingourwayout.com and learn more about the programs I've been talking about here. The, the first workshop, how it led to the book, all the podcast episodes that we've done are on there. They come in about the two programs, Open Minds and the Diversion Program, and to email me. And if they want to learn more, I'd be happy to, to share more what I know. Um, there's an email address on that website for writingourwayout.com. You can also reach me at uh, dcogan, D-C-O-O-G-A-N, at vcu.edu. So thank you so much, David. That was amazing. Yeah. I can't wait to hear about what you've been doing again. Thank you so much. Okay, sure. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show, Christian. Thank you for listening to the AERA Service Learning and Experiential Education SIG podcast, co-hosted by Dr. Christian Winterbottom and Dr. Amanda Hall, and produced by Thamana Sohal. If you'd like to get in touch to be featured on the podcast or to be a sponsor of the podcast, please email slee041podcast at gmail.com. That's S-L-E-E-041 podcast at gmail.com.